Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Welcome to episode eight of Sheep Thrills. Happy Saturday morning. I hope you all are doing so well um, on this lovely spring Saturday morning. I hope all of you in DC have been enjoying the cherry blossoms this week. Tis the season. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's just get right into today. Um, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, we spent so much time over the past three seasons of the show talking about the executive and legislative branches, but you know what? I don't think that we spend enough time talking about our good friends over in the Supreme Court. So today we're going to have a little judicial branch episode. We're going to talk about the SCOTUS, which I'm so excited to say over and over and over again because it's such a great acronym, the SCOTUS. So good. Much better than POTUS. Who cares? Um, But anyway, and luckily we had a very SCOTUS heavy week in politics. Basically everything that was in the news or all, all like the bigger stories that were in the news had to do with with our friends over in the Supreme Court. So we are going to talk about um, the Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings, which just wrapped up in the Senate on Thursday or Friday. Um, And so we've got a lot to talk about there. She's not going to be voted on until next Thursday, April 4th, I believe. Um, Wait, does that make sense? Is that the date? Yeah, whatever. She's not going to be voted on for a week or so. Um, so that's great. And then, so but we do have to talk about everything that happened in, the, in those confirmation hearings. Um, and then we have some interesting news to talk about with Clarence and Ginny Thomas. Clarence Thomas being uh, one of the members of the Supreme Court and Ginny being his wife. Um, and so we, I, I have not mentioned her on the show before, but she has been in the news before. Um, but now she has some direct involvement, um, some direct stories that we need to talk about with January 6th. So it should be interesting. And we're just going to get right into it. Um, in any other episode, the Ginny Thomas story probably would have been just like my, my little closing, like fun story of the week wrap up. Um, but since we're, since we're talking Supreme Court, we're deep diving here into the life and times of one Ginny Thomas. So get excited. Um, but to start out, we are going to talk about the Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings. Um, so KBJ, which, okay, this is just to start out and like completely tangentially, what is the deal with Supreme Court nominees and three part names? Like why, why is that a thing? Like it's just, is, is it just a coincidence that we had RBJ and then ACB and now KBJ? It just, it seems like they're doing it purposefully. And I don't understand what the intention is, but Anyway, just confusing, just confusing to me. But anyway, KBJ finally had her week of hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the past couple of weeks that they were coming up and I mentioned that they were going to be kind of a lot of nonsense. And we were right. It was just about as much of a hot mess as we expected. Um, like we talked about last week, there really wasn't much for Republicans to criticize her on, like legitimate policy things they could criticize her on. Of course, they had the issues with um, some child pornography cases that I mentioned last week, and they didn't think that her sentencing was strong enough. Um, but that was the only like legitimate policy thing uh, that they really had to, to go after her with, which was illegitimate anyway, but at least it was it was actually like a, a legitimate like judicial policy thing. Um, so, you know, when they have a four day hearing in lieu of talking about policy, of course, they're going to talk about nonsense. My favorite word. They are talking a lot of nonsense. Um, And so 
you know, the, the, the thing about a Supreme Court hearing is that it's a great way to get a lot of press. It's a great way to get your face in the news. It's a great way to go viral on Twitter um, just because it's, it's such an important process and people are actually paying attention to it. Um, so, yeah, the Republicans did their absolute best to end up in the headlines and not much else. Uh, and then they're just also just generally trying to get certain issues uh, into the headlines, just trying to change the overall dialogue away from the actual appointment and towards, you know, all the all the regular dog whistles that we've talked about over and over and over again. So, you know, critical race theory and, you know, trans athletes and all these different things that are just not something that that necessarily should have played as large of a role as they did in this hearing. Um, and I saw a tweet that said that the Republicans have exchanged their dog whistles for foghorns. And I'm just going to let that kind of be the uh, the the kind of logical framing for the rest of this conversation, that they were just not at all pretending to hide who they are or what they're doing, and they're just being absolutely themselves. And, you know, maybe maybe that's all we can ask from the Republican Party, you know? Um, so some highlights, or not, depending on your perspective. Um, so again, there was a big focus on, like, cultural issues, um, I say cultural in quotes because it's like forced, like it's like not things, things that Republicans think are part of culture, but actually are not at all. But they kind of want it to be because it's it's easy to like get in headlines when you're talking about it. Um, so, you know, Ted Cruz. Well, OK, here's here's my here's my little personal story. I was sitting at work and I was working on these spreadsheets and I was getting really, really frustrated about these spreadsheets. And I was a little bit behind and I like couldn't figure out what I was doing. And I had to listen to Ted Cruz do his line of questioning on, like, three separate TVs. And it was literally, like, it was a circle of hell. I was in a circle of hell trying to work on these spreadsheets while listening to Ted Cruz just be, like, a silly human being from the other room. So, anyway, that was very, very fun for me. But he talked a lot about... Um, you know, critical race theory, and he questioned KBJ on her opinions on the um, 1619 report, um, you know, showed her a children's book that I, I guess had to do with, like, being, like, teaching anti-racism, and was like, do you believe that babies are racist? Like, that's a direct pull quote there. Like, I'm not, like, being facetious. Like, he asked her, do you think babies are racist? It's just, like, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because it's such a legitimate, like, especially all the, first of all, whatever, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, um, it's, it's just ridiculous that you have so little time to actually question a nominee and you spend it on nonsense. It's another nonsense episode. Every week is a nonsense episode on Cheap Thrills. Let's be real right now. All we talk is nonsense. Um, they talked a lot about critical race theory. Um, there was a GOP tweet that got published. That was a picture of um, Katanji, and it said, you know, KBJ on it, and then they crossed it out and wrote CRT for critical race theory, which makes no sense, because why, you know? Uh, and so, again, there's, there's your foghorn of, like, oh, she's a black woman, and therefore, like, she is critical race theory. What does that even mean? What is, what is going on there? And, like, I'm sorry that I'm not being art incredibly articulate. It just bothers me that they have such limited time and they talk about nonsense. Um, they asked her to define what a woman was. Uh, and she basically said, I'm not a biologist. Like, what does this matter? 
um, which got like a great response from the um, Republicans in the committee. Um, Lindsey Graham asked her to rank how important her religion was on a scale of one to ten. Just don't know where that like I, I understand with the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, which I've been doing a lot of comparison because they're both like relatively young women, whatever, you know, they, they're, they're kind of I think they're foils of each other. I think let's let's use that literary term. They are they are foils of each other. Um, in that hearing, there was like a legitimate concern that her um, her like specific church was going to pose some kind of um, kind of like conflict of interest with abortion cases. Like that was like a legitimate conversation that they were having. But with KBJ, there was no there's no indication that her being like a non-denominational Protestant um, was going to was going to cause any issues uh, with her actual ability to serve on the court. But it was just, you know, it was all of them basically saying, oh, well, look how aggressive you were with our nominees. We're going to be just as aggressive with your nominees. When with their nominees, there were legitimate things to criticize. Um, I think more with Brett Kavanaugh with Amy Coney, than with Amy Coney Barrett, because her hearing was a little bit more neutral because there wasn't really as much to talk about. Um, but it's it's just such an interesting dichotomy between when there's legitimate criticism and when there's kind of like invented criticism uh, and how, how this kind of like plays into just the, the overall GOP narrative and the overall like GOP strategy, I guess. Um, yeah, so then like Lindsey Graham, who at one point someone mentioned in some article that they thought he was going to be a swing vote. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why that was the conversation because I could have told you that Lindsey Graham was not going to be a swing vote on this nomination. Um, but he was particularly aggressive and then continually accused Democrats of their abuse of, again, Brett Kavanaugh um, and, and, asked her, and asked KBJ, quote, how would you feel if we did that to you? Just like, just, it's, it's, whatever, we're going to get into this, but it's just political games. Like, that's all that is. Um, and it's also just disrespectful to her. Like, it's so terrible to, to drag someone up in front of a, um, in front of a Senate committee hearing and then just, like, abuse them for no good reason. You know, when there's when there's situations that abuse should arise, then it should arise, which is what happened with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. They needed to do their due diligence in that situation. Um, and did they do their due diligence? Hmm? I don't know. Um, but anyway, it's just a different situation. Um, and then the whole child sex abuse thing um, and kind of like trying to center that focus, it f seemed to me and to some pundits to be basically a direct nod to the QAnoners. Because their whole thing, like the whole root of the QAnon conspiracy theory, is that the Democrats are all like pedophiles who are running the government in secret and they're using their position to abuse children. Like that's that, that that's the like the overarching thesis of QAnon and then all the other things kind of like just this come out of it. Um, so it's a little upsetting that they specifically were not only not only were they specifically pandering to their base. They were pandering to their QAnon base, like their most radical, most intense base, getting those lines in the headlines of, of, of accusing Democrats of being sex of ch child sex abusers is a pretty significant and purposeful thing. Like they did that absolutely on purpose. 
Um, and again, it was just trying to make Democrats appear soft on crime, appear to be child abusers, like all of that stuff. So exhausting. But beyond the specifics of what happened in the in the actual hearing, because it's not, you know, whatever, you can go back and you can watch the videos. It doesn't really necessarily matter um, what, you know, what they talked about in the trial, whatever. The, the, the point is, what was the game? What was the strategy on either side? Um, and as, as somebody said, somebody quoted, theatrics are getting in, are increasingly political rather than orchestrated to achieve a particular policy goal. So once again, this had nothing to do with policy. This had nothing to do with making sure that the Supreme Court is an independent and fair body, um, kind of being that last check on everything. Um, but instead, it was just about the politics. And it was just about getting in the headlines and making sure that there was enough fodder for, you know, campaign mailers. Um, and, you know, it's because the other thing is we talked about this with the Amy Coney Barrett hearings as well, I believe, back in the day, a full year ago, and we were all online and miserable. Um, <laughs> but we talked about kind of like the politicization of the Supreme Court nomination process. And the point of having the president choose a nominee, well, one of the points, having the president choose the nominee and then having to be confirmed by the Senate is that it's supposed to kind of like take the politics out of it. Like there's that check on making the the body too overtly political. But what what happens when that process in itself becomes so political that the nominee no longer matters, right? Like we can't, and the, the, the point of the court also is that it's supposed to be an independent body. Like, yes, the, the um, Supreme Court justices all have their own political ideologies, but, they, um, but they're supposed to be politically independent. They're supposed to kind of not have, have that specific kind of political bias playing into their, um, playing into their decisions. So can we, or slash how we, divorce the court from politics? Is there a way... Is there a way to make the process itself less political um, or like less politically charged, I suppose? Um, people I'm talking about, again, like amending the way justices are selected. Um, there's a lot of several states that have their Supreme, their state Supreme Court justices. And I think some of their like like lower court justices um, selected by voters, like it just like it happens in a. Like in a like rant. I'm sorry for the squeaking. I'm trying to pull the mic closer to me. Um, trying to. What was I saying? I got distracted by my squeaky mic. Um, they have voters vote on Supreme Court justices. It's less. I mean, it's it's still inherently political because they're running as a Democrat or a Republican, but it kind of takes it out of the hands of party leadership, um, which in turn kind of makes it less likely that nonsense will ensue, potentially. I don't know. I think that, because, again, we did talk about this, but I, the difficult thing there is that there are so few educated voters when it comes to the top-line things, like when it comes to president and representatives and senators and everything else, that once you get down to a Supreme Court judge, people aren't really going to do the research that they need to do. And that's not like a dig on anybody, because that's me and, you know, myself included, um, that even though I'm an insane person and I have a weekly political talk radio show where I literally rant about politics for an hour straight without breathing, 
Um, I don't even do all that much research when I'm voting for Supreme Court justices. Like, I, I vote in Pennsylvania, so we do vote on Supreme Court justices. And, like, I do research and I look into things, but I do not do the amount of research that I probably should. Uh, and so that's kind of, it, it's just going to end up being a kind of a party line vote situation, I think. But anyway, just something, kind of something to think about there. Uh, the other thing is maybe we get rid of the lifetime appointments. Um, maybe we pack the court. Maybe we just add more people to the court to kind of dilute like those like intensely political voices. If there's more Supreme Court justices, then maybe like the process itself will become less strenuous. Um, but there's a lot of things, but not a lot of really good solutions for kind of, again, like divorcing this process from the political aspect, especially when you consider how great this opportunity is for politicians to kind of make a name for themselves. Um, like the, these politicians are not going to want to give up that opportunity to end up in a headline or to kind of do, you know, whatever, whatever they want to do. Um, and so again, like literally everyone just wants to end up in politics. Um, Leahy said on Ted Cruz, there was, there was, there was a little bit of infighting within the, within the committee this week. Um, and the quote is, I know the junior senator from Texas likes to get on television, but most of us have been here a long time trying to follow the rules. Um, Stick Durbin, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, was trying to, you know, tell him to stop talking, and he was talking over him, and it was, it was a little bit messy, but, like, he was like, be quiet. Sit down, be quiet, stop trying to get on Fox News. Like, there's going to be reporters out the door, like, in ten minutes when we take a break. Like, go do it then. Uh, as opposed to, like, doing all the political posturing now. Um... And then Ben Sass of Nebraska, who's a Republican, I can't really say this full quote, and I'm not sure how, because it has a curse word in it, and I'm not sure how to say it without saying it. All right, but the quote is, uh, quote, I think we should recognize that the Jack Ayery <laughs> we often see around here is partly because of people mugging for short-term camera opportunities. Um, and again, that's it. And like, maybe, maybe here's the solution is that we take all of the cameras out of, um, Congress. That's not true. That'd be terrible. It'd be not good for democracy. Um, but maybe, maybe there's some way that we could like, a, no, we can't impose limitations on the press because Ted Cruz can't stop acting like a jerk. <sighs> That's exhausting. Okay. Anyway. Um, and then once again, Democrats are trying to govern. Republicans are just being obstructionists. And it's, it goes back to the same conversation that we've had over and over and over again between the differences between the two parties. And again, once again, I should have said this at the top because this is an episode chock full of my own, my own bias, but this is not really a news show. This is a talk show where I tell you about my opinions. I tell you what I think. I have a lot of bias. I am filled to the brim with bias. So don't take my word as gospel, except for the fact that my opinions are all really, really good and you should all have my opinions too. But anyway, the way I see it, Dems almost always want to come to the table. They almost always want to negotiate. And I don't think that the Republicans do. Um, and that's kind of something that's come up over and over and over again, where when the Democrats are in the mi minority, they act very differently from the Republicans when they're in the minority. That's just the situation. Um, but moving on, kind of talking about the kind of the GOP versus the Democratic strategy. The, the Democratic strategy was clearly just, we have this very safe, very lovely candidate, 
we're just going to be safe. We're going to go like straight down the line. We're not going to rock any boats. We're just going to do our thing and move on. Um, and so they were very like somewhat aggressively safe during this process. Um, they wanted to get their own good sound bites too. They wanted to get those good clips that they could use on social media. Um, but they didn't want to get those sound bites if it was going to get them in any kind of political trouble. I think they probably got a very stern talking to before this, uh, before the process. And basically we're told like, don't screw it up <laughs> because this, there was obviously a lot of attention on them, uh, right now. And if the Democrats had kind of been maybe more aggressive, then it was going to kind of come back and, and, and bite them. Um, which again is the, the, the double standard that the democratic party faces versus the Republican party where the Republicans are allowed to be aggressive and rude and kind of abrasive but as soon as a democrat does it then it ends up in the news and there's a you know a new york times opinion article of you know i was a lifelong democrat until they told ted cruz to shut up like whatever um and i think yeah and i think like generally in terms of the like public perception of what happened uh during the trials trials during the hearings I think a lot of moderates did kind of read the Republicans as being, again, full of nonsense. At least I know that my, yeah, you know, I know, I like, I know some moderates who were, um, were like, that's silly. Why are they talking like that? Um, But again, the the, the Republican base is just going to do whatever the Republican base is. And then I think the the base Democrats are going to be happy regardless. They're fairly pleased with the choice and everything else. Um, so it wasn't like the Democrats were trying to necessarily appeal to their base too much because they were nominating a Supreme Court justice. They don't really have to do that. Um, but the Democrats did not push back much against the Republicans. And again, was this a good strategy that they did not come out publicly kind of in more aggressive support of KBJ throughout the process? And I know that they were trying to be the, the bigger person, but it also, again, as with everything, makes it look like they're they're kind of allowing themselves and their nominee to get walked all over. It reminds me of the meme where, you know, it's 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 the, the Democratic convention and it's, you know, like the, there's a poster on it that says, like, we can't govern and we hate ourselves. Like, it's so, just like kind of some like masochistic nonsense there. Um, but then also kind of starts a, that idea starts a very interesting conversation about what what like what the democratic or like what the majority party's role is in the confirmation of a nominee like do they um like is it their responsibility to um kind of protect the nominee should they have done more to be outwardly protective of her um cory booker had a great little segment where he um really went out of his way to verbalize how important the moment was and it you know brought KBJ to tears and it was kind of just like a lovely little clip because Cory Booker was so excited. He was so excited. He seems nice. Um, but anyway, so they could have, you know, they could have done more to make the, the, but then also kind of in general, we had that one viral moment that was so nice talking about how kind of important this moment was to KBJ. We also had like one moment of, um, the picture of her, her husband and her daughter going viral on Twitter a little bit. Um, but those were the two nice moments that I can bring up just from seeing it on social media. Otherwise, every single moment that I heard or read about or saw, frankly, was all Republican senators demean, basically demeaning her um, and like just generally being disrespectful to herself and to her qualifications. Um, and so it feels to me 
like the Democrats could have done more to make sure that the viral moments that came out of the trial were empowering to her instead of demeaning. And there was an article, an opinion article in the New York Times um, that was basically, it was called like the using of KBJ. Um, and across the aisle, how she was used, that she was used by the Republicans to advance their kind of nonsense social agenda and um, kind of used by the Democrats as just like a stepping stool to get one political win under their belt and kind of not fighting back against what the, you know, what narrative the Republicans are trying to spin, uh, which is pretty interesting. And it also brings up kind of an important conversation, another important conversation about what to do when the Republicans spew their nonsense. What do you do when they spread conspiracy theories and they talk about things that aren't important or significant political issues and they kind of turn, you know, a, a Senate SCOTUS confirmation hearing into a circus, right? What, how, do you, how do you fight back against that narrative? Is there a way to fight back against that narrative? Um, and, you know, we've had the conversation in the past about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all those things. Um, is, it, is it effective? Is it a good strategy to bring all of the stupid things that they say into the limelight? Is it good to repost those things on Twitter? Is it good to talk about them in think pieces? Or is it better to um, kind of ignore them and pretend that they're not there and just kind of shove it all under the rug and kind of not give them that attention? Like, is giving them the attention making it worse? A little bit. Um, and then also it's just like a general conversation about, like, policy communication is, like, the, the conversation about critical race theory. Like, I doubt that there are five Republicans in Congress who can, like, clearly articulate what critical race theory actually is. And, like, beyond that, maybe there's more that can articulate what critical race theory is. I don't know. I want, I want to know how many Republicans in Congress have actually read a book on critical race theory. I'm I just, I genuinely want to know, right? Um, and then when, so when that's the level of the nonsense, how do you educate the base? How do you cut through that noise? Um, and is it impossible, is it possible to negotiate, to have a conversation with that faction that's already so dead set on anything that's coming out of the Democrats' mouths are misinformation and fake news and all these things? I, is there, is there a way to, to kind of further that conversation? Um, and again, like, this is, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, I just know I've talked about it a lot to, like, friends and family and everything. This is my biggest, I think, I, I think this is it. This is my biggest issue with politics and with me potentially having a future career in politics, is that why are we, you know, when, when the thing about the federal government and the thing about government in general is that it has a direct effect on people's lives. You know, the federal government has the power to actually actually change the way that people operate in their lives and that actually it actually has a, like a strong ability to do important work and make people's lives better. And right now, instead of talking about how we're going to make people's lives better, we're talking about critical race theory and we're talking about critical race theory in kindergarten. I didn't learn about critical race theory until sophomore year of college. Like it's not a you're not reading Marx in kindergarten. Sorry, like you're just not reading Marx and not that Marx is a critical race theory, but whatever. Um, you're not looking about you're yeah you're not learning about uh, you know, 
symbolic interactionism in uh, in kindergarten. You're learning about all those things in college level sociology classes, right? So why are we, f and the fact that we're unable to change the narrative, like the narrative is so set in its ways that now we have to fight about critical race theory. We have to fight about dog whistle, you know, nonsense issues that don't really matter to real people, that aren't affecting the way that real people are able to live their lives. Frustrating to me personally. Um, and again, it's just the general, just the general thing of the Republican Party focusing on those issues because they know that it's going to land them in the headlines. And again, they know they're going to get a good poll quote to put in their mailers. And I, it's just such an aggressive abuse of the franking privilege. Like you get free postage from being in the United States Congress, and you're going to use it to spread nonsense about critical race theory? Really? Anyway, I love the franking privilege. It's my favorite. It's my favorite component of the federal government. And we talk about it. This is such a tangent, but I love franking. And um, it's so funny to me that whatever I'm, a, I'm, I'm finishing up my sophomore year of college now, and I am a political science major, and so I've been taking politics classes since like eighth grade. We've talked about franking so many times. Like, it's just one of the things, it's like that and like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And like, we just, we just talk about those things all the time and it makes me laugh. Anyway, but Republicans should not be allowed to use that privilege to spread nonsense about critical race theory that they, you know, they, they, they turned a Senate confirmation hearing into a circus and then they're, you know, using that as their own, like to kind of increase their own political potential whatever. Um, but anyway, sorry for that tangent. Sorry for talking about too much about Franking. But anyway, Senate's going to vote next week, as I said. Um, Joe Manchin, who we also thought was a potential swing vote the other way, um, has kind of thrown his support behind KBJ, Kristen Cinema. I don't think anyone was super concerned about. Um, I don't think anyone was particularly concerned about either of them. Um, I think if, if KBG had some environmental background, there might be a different conversation, but they knew that they were not going to do something that, you know, the, the, we can talk about the Biden administration, but they're, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to appoint a pro environment, an explicitly pro environment Supreme Court justice in this particular political climate. But anyway, um, right. There are some conversations that he might swing, but he is not. Um, so with Manchin and Cinema having thrown their support behind KBJ, the vote's either going to be 50-50 with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie, which would actually be pretty hashtag girl boss amazing um, for the first black vice president to, to kind of be that final vote to uh, confirm the first black Supreme Court justice or first black female Supreme Court justice, excuse me, um, which, you know, whatever. It's, it's not important and it's not substantial, but it will make me happy. So whatever. Um, and then if, the, you know, if it's not 50, 50, uh, there may be like one or two or three kind of s swing, um, Republican votes, the same suspects that we always talk about when we're talking about a uh, potential Republican swing voters. So Collins, Murkowski, Romney, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I, I kind of doubt that there's going to be any swing voting here on this. Um, just cause they know that they don't. Like, I think that'd be one of those things that if they didn't 
think that they were going to have enough votes, then Colin M- Collins and Murkowski might end up switching just so they can just get through the process. Um, but because they have the 50-50, they're probably going to end up kind of going that route instead, kind of playing to their own Republican base, kind of voting against event against those nominees. Um, and yeah, most, most Republican senators, even, you know, Ben Sass, who is our, you know, our populist, our populist friend has come out in, in opposition. Just a lot of, you know, cause it's, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that especially Republican like leadership was not going to vote for this candidate. Um, it's just the way it is. Everyone, everyone's joking. Um, our boy Mitch McConnell posted his tweet saying that he, you know, he came in, came into the process with an open mind, but after four days of hearings, he, you know, can't with good, in good conscience put his support behind uh, Ketanji Brad Jackson. And I was like, you've had this tweet in your drafts for two months. Don't lie. Don't lie. Um, which is a little funny. But also, again, it's a foregone conclusion. Why is the process like this? Why is the process a foregone conclusion? Um, but anyway. But the Democrats also did a good job putting a very solid candidate up. That, you know, they, they chose a candidate that was not going to ruffle... Um, oh, Lord. That was not going to ruffle Manchin's feathers. I got stuck with the M names. I was like, Manchin? Murkowski? Like, McConnell? Who am I talking about? Um... Once again, guys, it is early in the morning. <laughs> I'm running on fumes. Um, but anyway, they did a good job putting up a candidate that he knew the mansion could get behind. And she did a great job at the actual hearing. She was thoughtful. She was well-spoken. And also, look, purely surface-level nonsense. She, first of all, she and her family are so cute. And second of all, she just looks like a delightful human being. Like, she just looks extremely kind. I was joking that it looks like she gives good hugs. Brett Kavanaugh did not look like he gave good hugs. I don't want Brett Kavanaugh to hug me. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, they... KBJ was approached with a lot of nonsense. And I would have jumped over the table and decked Ted Cruz. Um, which is one of the myriad of reasons why I am not going to be a nominee to the United States Supreme Court. For, like, so many reasons... But one of them being um, that if Ted Cruz was still around, I would probably punch him in the face. So anyway, she didn't. And I'm proud of her for that. Um, yeah, just saying very cool under pressure in a way, in a, in a situation that just very much attacked her qualifications, attacked her identity, um, you know, attacked her, her ability as a, as, a, as a woman and as a judge to, to, be a, to be good at her job. It bothers me. But anyway... That's all I wanted to talk about on that one. But now we're going to move on to the second story that I want to talk about today, also having to do with this United States Supreme Court. And we're going to talk about Ginny and Clarence Thomas. So first of all, I totally forgot to mention this last week when I was doing my like little rapid fire updates. Um, but Clarence Thomas was in the hospital last week and he was there for a couple days um, with flu-like symptoms and an infection. Um... Or, like, some they, they, they thought it was, you know, flu-like, I don't know, some kind of infection. Um, and, of course, some very dark, very bad people had a very interesting time on Twitter talking about what would happen there. We're going to move on. Um, but anyway, he uh, he's a pretty old guy. He's been on the court for a long time. So, given all the current conversations about 
one Supreme Court. Then all this happening in the midst of the KBJ um, hearings was, um, yeah, people had lots of opinions. People had lots of thoughts, and they posted some very interesting things on Twitter that they probably shouldn't have posted on their public Twitter accounts. Um, but anyway, he got out of the hospital a couple days ago. He's fine, I guess. Um, so I don't know. There's not like any like really consistent reports on um, how he's doing, but I hope that he is feeling better and doing well. But also, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to retire. You know, maybe the pressure is too much, Clarence. Maybe go retire. Go sit on a beach somewhere. Drink some fruity cocktails. Read a book. You know, hang out on a beach. But anyway, um, but now Ginny Thomas is in the news. Ginny Thomas is Clarence Thomas's wife. She has been in the news in like the kind of like the third or fourth line uh, headlines in the past because she is a conservative like Republican activist uh, and has been very involved in Republican advocacy for a long time. Um, and it's been one of those things where people have been like, hmm, I wonder if that's a conflict of interest with what Clarence Thomas is doing. Um, but generally there hasn't been much, you know, there hasn't been like much like aggressive layover with what, um, Ginny was talking about. I'm going to talk, I'm going to call them Ginny and Clarence from now on. I know I should probably call him Justice Thomas, but it's a little confusing to talk about because they're both Thomases. So I hope that that doesn't bother anyone. But anyway, um, yeah, anyway, so they've been, people have been saying, is there, is there an issue there? Should we be, should we be paying attention to this? Again, there hasn't been too much overlap between what, Clarence Thomas was ruling on and what Ginny Thomas was doing her advocacy for, so it wasn't really a thing. But now there is a direct overlap between Clarence Thomas's rulings and what the advocacy Ginny was doing. Um, so we know that there have been tentative connections between Ginny and the January 6th situation, but now we have official clarification. So first of all, she stated that she was present like, at the protest on January 6th, I don't know if she was part of the, you know, the whole storming of the Capitol part of it, um, but we do know that she was present at the Ellipse beforehand. Um, did she know what the day was going to turn into? Was she aware of kind of like what the kind of like the actual plan was for the day? I don't know. Um, but it is it is pretty significant that she was present on that day. And then more damningly, the January 6th commission obtained and published text messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, telling him to overturn the 2020 election. Um, so that's a lot. That's that's like explicitly a lot. Um, the other the interesting thing there also is that the text came from like the the January 6th commission was able to obtain the text because Mark Meadows gave them to the to the commission, um, which is also kind of important that um, I did not realize that Mark Meadows was cooperating with the commission, um, but it is very, they, they, he gave the commission 9,000 pages worth of documents. Um, what a bad job. What, Mark Meadows really thought he was just going to have like a, like a silly little nonsense job and then he got stuck doing all of this. Um, but anyway, so let's, let's talk about Ginny and Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows. First of all, like what the heck? Second of all, I guess, the, in terms of her being present on January 6th, right? She's a private citizen. She's allowed to protest. 
She has a First Amendment that is not taken away because her husband is a Supreme Court justice. Um, but the actual texts, first of all, having Mark Meadows' number and then, you know, using that number to, you know, and using her number in her position to, like, specifically try to influence um, a political situation is not insignificant. It's not insignificant. Um, and, you know, the, it presents a pretty clear conflict of interest, especially considering all of the January 6th um, hearings and stuff, hearing hearings and stuff, all the January 6th cases uh, that the Supreme Court has been hearing over the past several, over the last year, um, and kind of will continue to hear um, moving forward. Uh, and they're, like, legal experts have stated that they're, it's fine for a SCOTUS member's partner to talk about politics. Um, you know, the funny the funny line I read in this article was, you know, even if they're talking about conspiracy theories, like, their politics are just very much conspiracy theories, like, it's fine. Like, they can continue to talk about it. Like, they shouldn't, but they can. Um, it's our First Amendment right to spread conspiracy theories. Um but again, anyway, I suppose that's not here today. Um, so they're, you know, they're allowed to talk about politics without the actual member of the Supreme Court having to recuse themselves on cases that have to do with that particular issue. Like if Amy Coney Barrett's husband made a comment about voting rights, doesn't mean that um, Amy Coney Barrett has to recuse herself from any voting rights case because it doesn't just because just because he's talking about the issue does not mean that he has some specific interest in the issue. However, the the actual texts were indicative of a kind of a larger issue beyond political activism. Uh, she wasn't just talking about issues. She had an explicit interest in the situation. Um, and that, let me actually try to find the, I wrote it down, the actual provision. Um, oh my gosh, I can't find it. I did write it down. I, oh, no, where is it? Oh, here we go. Yeah, the specific legal provision involving recusal states that um, the judges should not participate in proceedings in which their spouse has a, quote, has, quote, an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of the proceeding. And in this situation, it kind of seems a little bit more clear that Jenny Thomas isn't just kind of talking about politics. She has a specific interest in the case. So it's the same situation as if... Um, you know, they're ruling on a Deloitte case and one of their spouses works for Deloitte or is like a high up executive in Deloitte. Um, the, the justice would have to recuse themselves because they can't be making a decision that's going to like directly affect like the livelihood and well-being of, of their partner. And, you know, it was clear that she was an active participate, active participate. Oh my gosh, I really can't speak this morning. An active participant in like shaping the legal effort to overturn the election. She works for an organization. She's on the board of an organization that basically coordinated the stop the steal movement. And like, that seems, that seems fairly cut and dry, like beyond, like beyond the, the politics of it, beyond what the actual case is. Like, it seems fairly cut and dry that, um, she should have recused her or he should have recused himself from any January 6th proceedings because, Jenny Thomas works on Stop the Steal. Like, her job is trying to stop the steal. Um, and it's also important that the 
um, you know, I said uh, Mark Meadows gave 9,000 pages of documents over to the commission, which is, again, interesting. Um, and in the Supreme Court case that made those documents available, um, Clarence Thomas was the only dissenting voice, and he did not write a dissent. He did not give any reasons for his dissent. He just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Which now we know in those documents, there is specific literature kind of placing, placing Ginny Thomas front and center in this whole process. And they had to, they had to know that. They had to know that. Uh, once again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but whatever happened to the art of a cover-up? Whatever happened to the art of a cover-up? Um, and, you know, it kind of, it, it, it seems, it seems to me that, you know, people have been saying that this looks like corruption and it certainly looks to me like he knew that he should have recused himself and he did not. Um, and they have said, like both Clarence and Jenny Thomas have said that, um, you know, they don't talk to each other about, about their work. And so it doesn't matter because they don't influence each other because they don't talk about it. But according to the um, actual, like, laws of recusal, like, the actual, um, like, legislation that exists that kind of tells justices about when and when not to recuse themselves, like, it's actually their responsibility to inquire with their family member to figure out if there is an interest that they, that they, means they shouldn't be involved in the case. Um, like, actually, them saying that they don't talk about politics is probably more of a red flag um, because it shows that they don't. They aren't having the conversation that they need to have about in what situations they should and should not be be recusing themselves from these cases. Um, so they had a legal obligation to figure out if there was an interest there. And the other important thing here is that there's no higher court to reanalyze these decisions. Um, the independence of the judiciary, we just, like, just mentioned this, like, the independence from the judiciary, the independence from politics, not from policy, but from politics, is really important for the health of our democracy. The court is kind of the, the last check between success and disaster. Um, and it, so then, you know, the actual Supreme Court needs to have some dignity and the actual justices on the court need to have some dignity. Um, and it's important to making sure that we have a healthy and thriving democracy. And this situation kind of goes to show that we're not quite there. Both situations, both stories that I talked about today kind of go to show that, um, we're we're a far we're kind of a long ways away from the um i just got a text from my sister maggie who is listening in and apparently jenny uh, thomas didn't go to the capitol because she quote got cold thank you maggie um anyway so it's just once again goes to show that the the politics in the judicial branch is kind of made it so that it's not working as effectively as it should and it's just congress and the federal government in general not working as 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 well as it should um but with all that being said we're going to do some very quick rapid fire updates on everything else that's been going on this week um number one conflict in ukraine continuing to continuing to happen um everything has been happening you know it, it's 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 still moving and grooving, um, but there have been, you know, there's a couple couple short things I want to talk about. One, there's been various reports that Russia's military has been very, very much struggling. Um, Ukraine has captured a whole lot of tanks. I read something that they 
they now have more tanks than they started out the war with. Um, so the the kind of the Russian military operation is not uh, as great as this thought is going to be. But that's that's important that the Republican army, the not the Republican army. I'm so sorry. I I'm so sorry. I did not mean that. The Russian army is um, struggling a little bit. Freudian slip? I don't know. Uh, anyway, the, also, the United States has decided to admit 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, um, and they have been making their way to the United States through the Mexican border, which is interesting. We're not going to read too much into the fact that um, some European refugees are, are coming through the Mexican border and are allowed in. We're just going to move on. Um, oil prices are still a major source of conversation. Um, they've been kind of plateauing, but still kind of much higher than they than they were um before Russia invaded Ukraine. Um the issue is though that like barrels of oil were actually decreasing in price but the pump price was increasing. It's just corporate greed and all that kind of stuff. We we know this, but there's there's like legitimate policy situations going on trying to decrease the, those those prices because it is a very important um economic issue there. Joe Biden is also in Ukraine currently. I don't know if he has gotten back yet, but he was there yesterday. Um, he visited the Poland-Ukraine border, met with refugees, which is pretty significant. Um, and so just kind of kind of addressing the, the humanitarian crisis that's also emerging because of, because of the war, because of this like political conflict. Um, I'm taking a class on humanitarianism this semester. So it's been a, it's been a big conversation about what's going on with, with the refugee population and what the kind of uh, you know, humanitarian responses to that situation. But anyway, um, pretty important. We'll probably talk more about um, Biden's visit to Poland, to Ukraine next week when we have a little bit more information about what what went down. Um, also, in congressional news, um, Speaker, not Speaker, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm almost done. I'm like five more minutes, okay. Um, majority, minority leader, oh my lord, oh my lord, minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, has been pushing, um, Representative Fortenberry of Nebraska to resign his position. He was just convicted of three counts of lying to federal authorities about illegal campaign contributions. Meanwhile, Bestie got convicted of three counts of lying to federal authorities about illegal campaign contributions and didn't immediately resign. I'm just saying when you when you make a like a campaign finance violation like a big one like three of them, uh, I don't think you should be allowed to run for office again. I think that should be a disqualifying thing. But anyway, it's also hilarious to me that Kevin McCarthy is spending all of this time and energy, you know, pushing Rep Representative Fortenberry out when he does not say a single word about the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Madison Cawthorns of the world just generally. Once again, I'm going to say it again, spewing nonsense. Um, but anyway, there's, there's some, there's, there's some uh, conversations to be had there about whether or not, um, you know, what, what issues Kevin McCarthy finds the most important? What violations Kevin McCarthy thinks are, are disqualifying uh, issues for the, for the United States House of Representatives? Um, additionally, the House is in session all week next week, uh, so we can expect at least a few important votes. If nothing else, everyone being in town for a week should be interesting enough. Um, COVID funding, as I talked about last week, will probably be a major focus. 
probably some conversation on January 6th. Anyway, so there should be some plenty of votes to talk about next week. It'll be fun. Um, also, tangentially, I know I talk all about the Republican gerrymanders. Briefly, a Democratic gerrymander got thrown out in Maryland this week. Maryland is notorious for their Democratic gerrymandering. So I thought I'd spread the wealth a little bit and, uh, and, and say that Maryland is not getting everything that they want in, in the world. Okay. Last but not least, last thing I want to talk about, my fun, wild political story of the week. It's really not funny, but it is, in fact, wild. So we're going to talk about it. It might make you want to tear your hair out, actually, but I think it's important we talk about it. Um, Mike Braun of Indiana was talking to local press, and he was asked, would you, you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? And Mike Braun of Indiana said, yes. So he's re-litigating re Loving versus Virginia. So we're not going to really get too much into that because we don't have the time or emotional capacity. Um, but we are, in fact, debating interracial marriage in the year of our Lord 2022. So he tried to walk, tried to walk it back, but he really couldn't. Um, he wasn't saying that we should get rid of, like, we should, we should ban interracial marriage. But he was saying that we should get rid of, like, the federal legal provisions that make interracial marriage allowed. Which is problematic, to say the very least. But anyway, those dog whistles are loud. They're loud and they're obnoxious. But with that, that is all I wanted to talk about today. Um, just just for my father, who's also texting me during the show, which I, you know, love. Um, is uh, I hope you guys are enjoying watching March Madness. I certainly am. Villanova is my my uh my family's team also st peter's from the great state of dirty jurors um this has nothing to do with politics but whatever they're amazing and st peter's won on national peacock day how amazing is that uh, but anyway with that all of that being said if you want to show, follow the show on social media you can do so it is uh on twitter at sheep thrills gw and on instagram at sheep thrills radio dm me let me know what you think. Um, but with all that being said, I hope you guys have a lovely weekend. I hope you enjoy the cherry blossoms once again if you're in D.C. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to you next week. Have a great week, and I will talk to you later.